Hello, everyone. I am super excited for you all to meet my guest today. Paige Bond is a licensed marriage and family therapist who specializes in helping individuals, couples, and ethical non-monogamous relationships with concerns about intimacy and relationship anxiety and insecurity. I actually met Paige because I had the opportunity to be a guest on her podcast, Stubborn Love, and I was immediately drawn to her energy from the moment that I came on what I now have confirmed was Zencaster because I could not remember that. I just felt safe. And that is what you want from a therapist, from a friend, from a person in your life. So I was so excited that she wanted to come on and be a guest for us here. Not only was the conversation amazing, we talked about shame and relationship dynamics, which I'll definitely put a link to in the show notes. Y'all can check that out and some of the other amazing episodes that she has on her podcast. But we got a chance to talk a little bit more about our clinical work and share so many of the same ideals and values about how we want to show up for our clients and for ourselves and really thinking about what it means to write our own stories. So I think Paige is really going to bring such a beautiful blend of personal and professional elements into this conversation. So today we're all going to connect and learn with her about a topic that is far from getting the space it needs and deserves, ethical non-monogamy. Look, relationships are hard and complex. I say that as somebody that is still learning how to navigate my relationship 13 years in. And since we were little, we internalized the idea that the only way to have a successful relationship is through a very specific tunnel of actions, of the physicality, the appearance, what it looks like, the boxes that it checks. And we all know this doesn't work. None of us, no matter how much you think you fall into a binary of any kind, is going to fit into a set of boxes. And it's about time that we break them down, recycle them responsibly, and open the door to the fact that we all need, want, and love differently. And it's your right to explore that and figure out the boundaries that you need for you to feel seen, safe, and heard in the process. Welcome, Paige. I'm so excited. Oh my gosh. I'm so giddy right now. What a warm <laughs> welcome. Oh, I was writing a little bit of that last night and I'm like, oh, I like I felt I've learned now that when I get the dopamine hits, they're the front of my brain and it feels like somebody put pop rocks right like center to the right about a centimeter and they just go off and I was feeling it. And it's for me, it really is the energy that you bring and knowing, and I don't know what number this is going to get released as, but for everybody listening to this, this is my first episode that we're recording. And I just felt so grateful that it was with somebody that I've already had the chance to do this in such a really open and safe space with. So welcome. I am, I think one of the things that I like to do just in general, kind of a setting the stage of where we're at, how we're feeling. I love to do one word check-ins. So I'm curious for you, What's one word that you would use to describe how you're feeling right now in this moment? Is tantalizing a good descriptor? Ooh, I, I love it. Like that's the first thing that came to my mind. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And I love the idea too of every time I do this, my brain will go, well, tell me what that means for you. What does that look like? What is that? You know, the therapist part, but instead going, I'm going to let everybody sit with that. Some people are going to be Googling that to look up what the word is. Some people are going to be like, do that. I yeah. gotta be honest. I don't know the actual definition. I, I also do that a lot. I don't know if you've seen, have you seen the new Knives Out movie, the Knives yeah. Out Glass Onion? The main character who, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, he ends up being the bad guy, but you can tell like right away that he's not a great person. Part of the really funny aspects of the movie is that they have him saying words that are not actually the right word the whole time. I do this all the time. My husband will suddenly I'll notice him smiling. I'm like, shit, I didn't get the right word, did I? Like, it sounds good. I like, I was a spelling bee champ, but not a definition champ. Like I can spell all the words, but I cannot tell you what they mean half the time. And so I think tantalizing fits, but I'm going to say that with the caveat of knowing I may not actually know what that word means. So I'll Google it later too. <laughs> 
for me, like I just like describe it as like the spider excitement things, like kind of like goosebumps that you feel about, like, you know, something really great is about to happen. So that's how I feel. I love it. I would say same very much. I feel, I guess I'm going to cheat on my own question, but the, the two words I think really resonating with me is I feel this sense of inner calm, like my, like my brain pond is just excited. It's moving. Everything's flowing, but the internal like pit of my stomach feels so at ease. So it's a really nice kind of oppositional place to exist. I guess oppositional is a bet. See, that's not technically a a positive word. They are in opposition, we'll say. So I'm, I'm really excited. I know we're going to go to so many different places, but I'm curious as two counselors working in this field, I know a lot of the times when I, people find out that I do this, there's, you know, half the people want to tell me their whole life story and want a free counseling session. The other half are like, I'm not talking to you ever again, because I'm afraid of what you're going to say. But there's always this interest of how did we get here? What prompts us to want to hold other people's stories? And so, you know, I think for me, I've had a lot of time to, to recognize the way that my trauma, my pain, my experiences kind of opened the door to this because what happened for me is I wanted to figure out how to help other people not feel so lonely and ashamed the way that I did. And so I'm curious for you, how did you, how'd you make this decision and why specifically marriage and family? Um, well, it really started a long time ago as this dream of like wanting to be a psychiatrist because in my family, um, like working hard, achieving a lot was really where I was supposed to go. I mm. was the kid that was supposed to go to college, do all these big, great things with a big mm. degree, make a bunch of money and then send all the money back home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, a, that's a tall ask, but I get it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then I started taking like biology and chemistry when I was in college and I'm like, Oh God, I do not enjoy this. And then Uh I like was taking calculus and math and I'm like, Oh my God, I hate numbers. No, please Uh stop. Um, and realized, okay, um, well, psychiatry isn't in the cards. Um, if this is going to be what my life is like. And, um, I got on the track of psychology and entered into a marriage and family therapy program. And why specifically I chose that is because I've always been obsessed with relationships. Like Mm. my parents divorced when I was a preteen, like in middle school. And I was like, why'd y'all even get together? Like, it makes sense (laughs) to me why y'all aren't a good match. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So I just like became obsessed with this thought of like, why do people get together? What keeps people together? And then why do people end their relationship? And so um, I kind of went on this love obsessed journey to like yeah. be the best couples therapist ever. Um, yeah. Which is and- probably also prompted by some of the idea of like, you're supposed to be at the top. And so if you're going to do this now, you have to also be the best at this and of you're course. interested in it. So that's this perfect storm of, of push. Yep. Yeah. of perfectionism. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so I, I started working with couples in grad school, loved it, had so much fun. I just always find it, um, more fun when there's more than one dynamic in the room. Like mm-hmm. you, you just learn so much about a relationship and there's really a lot of aha moments that happened. It's more fast paced for me, which I really, really enjoy. And then after I graduated from my program, I eventually opened my private practice. And my first three clients that came to me all had some version of ethical non-monogamy or mm. cheating and wanting to go into EM. Mm. And I'm like, oh, well, this is actually really, really fun and interesting for me. And I love learning about how to help this. And also, why are people coming to me? Ha. Huh? How, yeah. how did this happen? Like, yeah, how what, did what's I the become... light that you turned on, right? That suddenly people feel what's the energy? It's literally what I felt on our first login. It's this, oh my gosh, this person is someone I can be my full self with. Cause I couldn't imagine walking in the door and immediately sharing those pieces. And so there's, 
it's a testament to the the openness you create, which I'm sure is uncomfortable to hear, but also on some level you've got some confidence in maybe now as you've done more of this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for me, and I won't say it's not that like nothing surprises me anymore because there's always going to be someone new challenging me or helping me learn about something new. Um, I just think that everybody's on their own journey and Mm -hmm. forget like all the people in the, like as Brene Brown says, like in the cheap seats, like forget all the people in the cheap seats, like throwing all these thoughts or criticism or whatever, like live your life. Yeah. So I just want to help people do that. Yeah. Well, and it's so interesting to, I so smiling, the original sort of, I was going to be this person. And so anybody that is listening to this that has heard my story is probably like, wait a minute, who's talking right now? Because that sounds almost identical. Like I was, I got a Dr. Build-A-Bear from this like teacher when I was in high school. And it was like, you know, cause every, I mean, everybody from the time I was a little kid, like little, little, which again, you're picking from like six professions you actually know. So unless you're going to be an astronaut, a firefighter, a doctor, like we didn't know anything else, but I think then it was, that's my ticket to be the best in the room. That's my ticket to success. And so I think for different reasons, but I was in a very similar path and I was going to Mine was analytical chemistry and physics. So I I hit that and I was like, what the fuck am I doing? I hate this. That and I would do like, I forget what it's called. You shadow, like you go into like a clinic and you do all the stupid like stuff you got to do to make your application look cool. And I passed out. Like somebody was getting a, a bone marrow I think they were getting a bone marrow transplant or they were doing wow. something. They were, t- yeah, I was in like a hemonk unit and the next thing I know, I woke up and this woman was giving me chocolate cake and asking me if I felt okay. And I'm like, what the f- happened? Like, I, I was just there. I was like, I'm supposed to be able to do this thing. And I was like 20 feet away from them. Wow. So, but it was funny because I remember the moment that I made the decision. I also thought psychiatry, I think less about, I mean, I knew that there would be stability. I knew that there would be security being, I wanted to always be able to support myself. I didn't want to ever depend on anyone because a lot of my system was about, you can't depend on anybody to be there. Same. But then, okay. So there's this overlap for us in Mm -hmm. that of like, you become really good at standing on your own, which makes it hard to sometimes then lean into relationships and be vulnerable, which I'm sure we'll get to. Yep. But then you release it and it's, your identity has become about being at certain level of performance, which is again, what you're describing, wanting to help people stop worrying about is like, you don't even need to be in the fucking arena with a bunch of people watching you. Like go off in the woods by yourself, go write your own story. Like it doesn't, no one has to watch, but in our mind, we needed them to watch. And my guess is for you is the same thing. You needed everybody in the room to know it and to see it, not because you wanted them to think you're the best, but it was the only way that you felt like you could be okay enough to be in the room with all mm-hmm. of them. Mm-hmm. It's the, it, it's like the cure to imposter syndrome. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent, which is now, as we look at it, you know, if we put our therapist lenses on, we know it's obviously not, it's the addiction feedback piece into imposter syndrome. Cause we chase yep. it for the rest of our lives. So when you, when the, your first clients coming in the room, you start hearing these stories, what was your reaction? Were you immediately met with that kind of openness? And I'm just excited to hear, did you have bias? Did you have any of those internal pieces to work through? What was that like when you first were kind of given the invitation to explore ethical nominogamy? Yeah. So I think like when I first started hearing that in the room, I was like, screw my grad program. They did not prepare me for this. Yeah, because- right. <laughs> Like I took a whole human sexuality class and honestly, I don't even remember any kind of ethical non-monogamy terms in a human Mm. sexuality class. We explored kink, we explored um, different sexual orientations, but we Mm -hmm. didn't explore different relationship orientations. Mm -hmm. So mad. Um, But when I first started having people sit down in my room um, in at this time, I kind of like positioned myself as this very big sex positive therapist. So whatever way they wanted to express or explore their sexuality, I wanted them to feel comfortable with that. And so when, when I heard, you know, these kind of new dynamics that I wasn't familiar with, I was 
excited, honestly. Um, mm. and, and trying to come from a place of understanding of where they were, because I knew I didn't have any kind of experience really, um, in my personal life at that time to be able to like come from that lens at all. I was coming mm-hmm. from a monogamous, um, socialized conditioned lens Mm -hmm. and I was like okay I gotta make sure that I like draw in all my reinforcements to make sure I give them all the resources they need to actually get what they want out of therapy Mm. and what I mean so even as you're saying that I'm thinking even when you said it so I moved out to Portland Oregon five years ago now And it wasn't until even maybe three years ago that I first even had a client identify as polyamorous and got the invitation to be like, oh, there's a whole subset of existing and living that you don't know anything about. And you immediately have a little bit of fear about it. And also the drive for me always is then to overcompensate. So then I need to be the best therapist to talk about polyamory, even though I have no training or awareness of it yet. Which, you know, obviously, as we both know, it's the openness and willingness to talk. And I've learned that, but my ego doesn't always listen. So as that happened, I mean, even as you said, okay, let's, we could talk about ethical non-monogamy. I'm like, well, shit, do I know what that means? How does that define versus polyamory? Are they the same? So let's, how would you define it? For people that are listening to this, they're like, wait a minute. I guess I know these words a little bit, but I don't know what they actually mean as pages putting them together and talking about how people, this is how they identify. Mm-hmm. So ethical non-monogamy can have many different structures, but the whole basis of the definition is being able to express enthusiastic consent for mm-hmm. exploring um, any type of romantic or sexual type of dynamic outside of the original, you know, couple bubble that you might've created with a monogamous relationship. And so you open up, you explore ethically, non-monogamously, non-monogamously with other people outside of Mm -hmm. that original monogamous person you thought you were going to be with. And what do you think? I, I kind of heard my hairs on the back of my neck when you said like in a good way, what you said, enthusiastic, which sort of suggests this idea that people can be excited about this. Is that a key thing in the process? Like when people are coming in and you're talking about it, is that a key tenant to this process? Well, not all my couples uh, come in, you know, not all of them are going to have one partner so enthusiastic. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I say enthusiasm as a way in back to the word opposition in opposition to coercion, Mm. you know, because you can explore non-monogamy through um, unhealthy tactics. Um, Mm. There can be just like in any monogamous relationship, very unhealthy ways of approaching non-monogamy as well. Mm -hmm. And so I say enthusiastically, not in a sense as, oh my gosh, I'm so excited to explore. It's more of a Yes, I definitely um, may have some feelings about this and it may bring up a lot of discomfort for me, but I am on board. I am not doing this. Yeah. Yeah. You got my consent. Yeah. I think that is a really key differentiation because I would assume, you know, as we're thinking about the people that are coming into the room, it's not, there might be some couples, some partnerships that are coming in where both people are really interested and like, yes, we want to explore this. That's not always the case. I'm assuming there are sometimes, you know, the clients that I've worked with that identify as polyamorous, there are sometimes in that partnership, I had a, a client that was married. He was not interested in any other relationships and she was, and that was a key point of tension for them because he wanted to support her, but he also didn't like it. And, and so there, I could imagine for you that the enthusiasm might just be, I'm willing to talk about this, but I don't actually yet know what I think or feel and want. And that's a really important place for them to be able to be at until they would feel ready to be able to engage in any way. Yes, precisely. Yeah. So walk me through, you know, when you're saying these clients are coming in the door, what is the kind of primary pain point or the issue that they're coming in with? What is that initial 
this is how I'm identifying or what I want or what I'm interested in exploring. And this is the problem for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's jealousy, insecurity. Mm -hmm. Um, And usually they frame it as it's a problem that they need to solve to make their relationship work. They think of themselves as the problem for expressing jealousy or insecurity. And I have to fix me. I have to fix this problem I'm bringing to our relationship so my partner can be happy. That's the biggest thing that comes to my office. So a lot of the times this, the partnership might already be engaging in ethical non-monogamy and one person or both, but the person coming into your office might be saying, look, I'm effing this up. I'm, I am the issue here and I need to get over it. And then it's not just, I'm jealous or I'm, you know, feeling this way about them in another relationship, but I'm going to break my relationship. Like they're going to leave fully because I can't get it together. I can't get my feelings in check. Yep. You nailed it on the head. Yeah. That's their biggest fear is that, oh my God, I'm bringing all of this quote, I'm using quotes, drama (laughs) to the table. Um, and I'm quote overreacting. Uh, and my partner's going to leave me because I'm quote crazy. Mm. And, and that's what they think. Um, what, do you, what do you say? And I say, yes, you're experiencing jealousy and insecurity, but these are very, very, very normal feelings to have when exploring this. Yeah. And you are not crazy. Yeah. I mean, I just think about, you know, I know we're both in the U.S., regardless of how somebody identifies like in terms of short, like sexuality, relationship orientations, things like that, but also just like your belief system and your values. We were all raised in a culture that says it is a cisgender man and a cisgender woman that both have to fit within certain metrics of existence in terms of their weight, their education level, the color of their skin, like all of these things, and they can be together. And it's already like, we allowed divorce into the picture, but that's already still problematic. So like, that's, you know, again, that's, that's shameful enough, but now you're going to tell me that you're going to do this. This is not allowed. And it's, that is the storyline we've all gotten. That's the picture that's been painted. And so it's not even just if your partner that you love and care about is with somebody else and you see them having a good time, of course, you're going to feel that way. Of course, you're going to have those immediate reactions, but on a deeper layer, it's because you've been taught that this can't work. This can't happen. Mm-hmm. So it's not, yeah. I mean, I'm, so I'm I'm watching your head nodding. And so obviously other people can't see that, but I, I'm assuming this is bringing up something in you too. So I'll pause because it to me, it makes me like, I feel myself get hot thinking about like, like that's the shame. That's the shame piece coming mm-hmm. in right there is, mm-hmm. and probably like, feeling this way from the beginning, but feeling like they have to silence it to make it okay because they love their partner. They want to do these things for their partner and they're silent suffering because they think they're broken in the problem. They just need to be stronger and better. And they're not being the the cool partner, the supportive partner. And then the whole thing feeds back into the storyline they've been telling themselves since they were a kid about every other aspect of themselves too. Mm-hmm. Okay. Get out of my head of yeah. <laughs> me being in my last relationship. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's precisely it. And and I was in those shoes. Um, right? Mm-hmm. Because we we think that we have to basically go above and beyond, you know, what we may be used to, what our boundaries might be, um, to be able to keep the relationship we have, right? Mm-hmm. And it's it's so important. That's why I I'm not a person who is like, everybody must be polyamorous. All yeah. right. <laughs> right. That's not what, what I'm saying and why I do what I do. I'm saying I want to help you in whatever way you want to structure your relationship because it can work in multiple different ways. I've seen right. it. I've helped people get there. Um, however, I want you to do it in a way that honors your true self. Mm. And that is so important to do. And if you're kind of like just pushing your own needs, your own values down, you're going to be sucked into this wormhole of unhappiness with your partner while exploring this. It's Mm -hmm. not going to end happy. Well, yeah, because then you just feel lonely, you feel resentful. And you've, you know, I go back to 
I don't know if you ever had this when you were little, but they would always sell, you know, best friends charms or necklaces or like any other garbage trinket. Now that I have a three-year-old and she gets like Valentine's and stuff. And I'm like, if these parents could just like, just plant a seed in the earth, cause I'm throwing this thing away right away. But you'd get these things. Cause you thought like, I need to show my best friend, you know? And it's like a form of branding, honestly, if we're really doing it, I didn't do it. Cause I thought they were cool. We did it because it's like, I need everybody to know that's my best friend. Don't fucking yep. touch them. Mm-hmm. It feels like that, like the system that would happen. I had two girl best friends in middle school and in high school, and it felt like somebody was always feeling left out. And then it got to the point where it was like, if I'm hanging out with this person, we're lying to the other person. We ha- we can only do these things at this time. And it doesn't feel that dissimilar to what you're describing here. Because again, it's this idea that I have to be your everything to be worthy to be in the room. Instead of saying, you can be their everything in certain ways, in certain aspects, but it, that's just an unfair responsibility to put on you and anybody else to be every single element. And again, that doesn't mean I do identify as monogamous. I think I have brain thoughts and interests and curiosities about other aspects of relationships. And again, that's kind of what I mentioned in the beginning of whether you identify in any form of a binary or not. Like all of us consider these things. All of us think through what would it be like? What would this feel like? How would you do this? What about this? But it's that idea of saying, it's not even if, you know, my husband were to go be with someone else sexually or emotionally or like have another relationship or we explored ENM. It's the idea of saying, I don't need or want him to feel like he has to be my everything because what happens when he can't? And on the flip side, what happens when I can't? That's too much pressure. Mm-hmm. So the the thing it sounds like you're doing is trying to give space again, regardless of if it's specifically down the route of ENM or something else, but just to say you have needs and wants, and so do other people. You don't have to get them all met by one person, and it is okay to explore what it would look like to get them met by other people. Mm-hmm. Precisely, yeah. Okay, so walk me back because you said I got in your head for a moment. That was not your experience when you were in a relationship. So my guess is you are the client walking in that's saying, look, I, I'm doing this wrong. Something's wrong with me. I need to figure this out. Yeah. Okay, yeah. how did yeah. that start? Well, um, I had a partner who came to me, um, you know, well into our relationship that was based on monogamy and said like, hey, um, you know, I want to open up. I want to try exploring new things. I think I'm polyamorous. And this is like, for me, I'm already like trained to know the different terms of ethical Mm -hmm. non-monogamy. And I know my partner, I'm like, "Mm, you don't want other emotional bonds. I don't think. Yeah, right. (laughs) Because he just wanted to, you know, screw everybody in the world. Um, Ah. and, And so... What um, that was is me doing a lot of my own work with my therapist, and she was so great about it, like making sure that I was trying to align with my own values. And I, I really did a lot of work in coming up with boundaries that were comfortable with me, that were coming up with like kind of like these baby steps of things mm-hmm. that I was comfortable with because there were some curiosities that I wanted to have and explore and um, see what I might be able to enjoy mm-hmm. um, and and see if this was something that like I wanted to. Um, and so n- no matter what happened, uh, so many conversations when I would bring up a boundary <laughs> would be met with uh, resistance mm-hmm. and you keep coming to a head. And so like there would be this push and pull, push and pull of like, all right, here, I have this boundary. And then (laughs) there would be resistance with it. And then another conversation of, all right, if it's going to be like this, I just won't even explore an open relationship. And Mm. that happens a lot to couples. Mm -hmm. The habits like the other partner will just get so frustrated and kind of throw their hands in the air and be like, all right, fine, have it your way, right? Which is not necessarily what I or other partners are saying. It's let's do this in baby steps, ways to cultivate security so that we can approach it in the healthiest way possible. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, interesting just, this notion of, I mean, we could dive down the rabbit hole of obviously different personality types, and I don't want you to feel like you have to psychoanalyze your relationship or people like that, but it's, it seems like they were never interested in 
figuring out a solution together. They were interested in things a specific way. They didn't actually want, you know, in your relationship, potentially, they didn't want to hear what you wanted or needed. They wanted to do something the way that they wanted to do it. And unless you were on board with that, then like nothing else mattered. Yeah. And that's a very unsafe. I mean, you can probably say that now hindsight of like, gosh, that probably wasn't emotionally and mentally safe for me in other ways too. You know, that Mm -hmm. wasn't maybe the first sign that this person wasn't going to be a secure person for you. Nope. But again, when you come in, both of us sharing that, like, I've got to do it all, be it all. I can handle it all. I can be everything for everybody else. That belief is that our job becomes being the human giver. We got to do whatever we can to make it work for the other person. And if you've been in this relationship, you want to make it work. It sounded like at this time you were already doing this professionally. Mm-hmm. So there's also this, like, I want to be able to like talk the talk and walk the walk. Like I can't just shut this down and like go against this. Like I want to lean in the way I would support somebody else in doing in a safe way for them. And then the instant that you said, here's what I need to feel seen, safe and heard. They said, but that doesn't matter to me. Mm -hmm. And the feedback loop then, and that's, you know, really where we see abusive relationship patterns come into play is. So my job is just to keep giving. I'm jealous of this other thing that's happening. I don't feel secure. I don't feel safe. And every time I say something, I feel even more unsafe. So I have to stop saying something, which is making it worse. And again, it just all keeps compounding on itself to where the relationship is eventually going to implode or does implode. Mm -hmm. And you are left still feeling like somehow you are the one that effed it up because you couldn't get your shit together in the way that they expected you to in the beginning. And you made this a problem and now look at nothing works. Yeah, exactly. It was a typical anxious avoidance cycle that Mm -hmm. we were in back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And when, when I look back on it, um, really this partner just wanted to be single, honestly, and, and couldn't, um, get it in them to break up fully with me. Mm And so this was another alternative route, um, ethical non-monogamy. And so I I want to preface, (laughs) if you want to be single, please be single. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Right. Those are not the same things. No. Um, you, You can have your cake and eat it too. However, you should do it in a healthy way where all partners are treated securely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think... Even as you said that, so the anxious, avoidant attachment styles, thinking about these different elements here too, it's the notion that what we're seeing when we're talking about ENM, when we're talking about exploring, you know, different aspects or iterations of a relationship, it really just becomes a manifestation of our our shame, our sense of self that's coming through in these different things, because mm-hmm. it is somehow lacking a form of security to feel safe and likely for people in the relationship, this came in with them. It's the stories they had, the experiences they had, the lives that they've lived coming into that partnership that are now sort of coming together and creating those distressing Mm -hmm. dynamics. What would you say to someone? I mean, maybe let's first talk about kind of the side you identify more on of somebody that was curious about it, but did have this, this is what I want. This is what I need. And I'm not feeling seen? Is there something you would say or or wish someone had said to you at that time when you were going through that? Hmm. Say the question one more time for me. Let me have it marinate. Yeah. I mean, I think about, you know, if you go back, however many years ago that was, be that version of you again. And imagine all those shame thoughts, all those anxious thoughts coming in, all those pieces again, with that glimmer of curiosity of like, I do kind of want to figure this out. What do you wish someone would have said to you in that moment? Or how do you wish someone would have supported you? Mm -hmm. Luckily, I had the support of a really fantastic therapist helping me kind of piece through my sexuality um, because I've been ingrained with this culture. You know, I come from a family, goes to church, um, monogamy is the way, um, you gotta be straight. Yeah. Not really a big fan of any other sexual orientation. And so I had to do a lot of, um, work with that. And luckily my therapist did give me, uh, um, this glimmer of hope of like, it is okay to be curious and explore these things that you might 
be interested in. I think another thing that could have been really, really helpful is just having other people normalize it around me. Mm. Um, because this is not a topic that like friends talk about, families don't talk about this, coworkers don't talk about this. It's a really personal and, and sometimes very shameful topic mm-hmm. um, that keeps everything hidden. And so I, I had only known um, at that time, one other person who was also kind of on a similar journey of exploring that as well. Um, and so that was, that was somewhat helpful, but it still felt so lonely. Yeah. And I even, I remembered as you were talking, there was a moment in, I must've been a freshman in high school and we were getting ready to leave for an away volleyball game. And I remember having a thought, like almost like a flash of this female that I knew and sort of finding myself feeling sort of a sexual attraction. Uh, right. And I, I mean, I feel it even in me now, the shame of that moment coming back of like, yeah, but I'm not a lesbian, right? Like I, that, that can't, don't tell anybody. If my friends found out all my, all my girlfriends would leave, they wouldn't want to be my friend anymore. They're going to think X, Y, and Z. And, and just immediately being met with the, all the internalized bias that I had had of the world and the system that I grew up in. And I don't know how family would have acted or friends would have acted because I never told anybody. I kept it to me. I I did not tell anyone until I ended up telling my husband. We've been together 13 years. I told him, I don't know, somewhere in my early 20s of like, I have these thoughts sometimes. And the other thing that's really weird about it, and I don't know if you see this with clients or if you've experienced this too, but I think as somebody who identifies as female, I present as female, when you share any of those curiosities, it feels like it sort of gets sexualized in like a porn type way. Like it becomes Mm -hmm. a fantasy for someone else instead of just talking about sexuality as a thing that we can just explore. And, and I wondered, I wrote this down as you were talking of like, is it our drive to label things? Is it our Mm -hmm. fixation on sex as a certain thing? And again, still rooted back to some of those norms but there's, I don't really know what my question is or what my thought is, but it feels like all that is coming up, this awareness of that. Or I even remember I had a really good friend. I don't know how she identified. I know she dated women and she dated men. I don't, I never asked her how she identified, but I remember having, we had a sleepover. I was still in high school. She was in college or, or out of college. And we were hanging out and we went to go to sleep and she goes, no, don't don't get any ideas. And she, I actually think I might have told her about this flash at one mm-hmm. point in a way that felt safe. Um, but I said, oh no, like that would never happen. Like immediately kind of met with that again, a little mm-hmm. bit of like, I think homophobia, like internalized homophobia in there, but it was, I think what I would have seen as like innocent homophobia because it's kind of that, like, well, I'm not that racist, but like, mm-hmm. that was still homophobic mm-hmm. how I reacted. Yeah. And then like, she, gosh, why would you think that? Yeah, I would exactly. Think that? Like I'm, I wouldn't do that. Like, please don't joke, you know? And then she woke up in the middle of the night and I am a mover. And she woke up to me literally on top of her, like sleeping. Cause I just cuddle up with anything there. And she woke me up and she was like, so how do you, how do you want to talk through this one? And like sort of pointed it out in my face. And she was, I feel so grateful because she did a lot of that calling out that I wish more of us did of like, these things are okay to talk about. Like that doesn't make you gay because you might do this. And also you could have an attraction to a woman. And why is the fear of that label, the thing we run from? Because I think that's a big part of it is someone's going to perceive me as this. And this label is on the ladder system of being okay. It's a lower rung on the ladder. So Mm -hmm. I can't have, I have to hide that. I have to put it down here. And so for you, I could imagine too, that like, this is what I've been taught. This is the system. I mean, again, we both grew up in the US. Sounds like we had some similar vibes of what that meant to, to be successful. And that, I don't know that it feels like there's something there to that. So I'm going to stop because my brain is like processing through a lot. What's, what's sitting with you as I'm saying all that? I think I I can relate a lot to like this 
fear of being labeled, right? And then I kept going to my therapist. I'm like, you know, would doing this make me lesbian then? Or would doing this make me bisexual? Like, and she's like, why do you need to put a label on it, Paige? Mm-hmm. You're just being curious. You're exploring to see what you like. And just because you may like an act, um, that may not mean that you like it with uh, because of, uh, you know, whoever's genitalia. Right. Maybe you like that specific action done to you, no matter who the heck it is. And yeah. you're just, you know, excited about pleasure. Yeah. And it's okay if it comes from, you know, a, a person of your gender or someone who doesn't um, identify as a gender or an opposite gender, you know? And so like, there was a lot of work <laughs> I had to do to um, get get myself like in this state of like acceptance in my own sexuality. Mm-hmm. Well, isn't it interesting how you didn't have that with your clients, but the instant it was yours, because again, they can do it. They can, you, that you want them to write their own stories. You want them to feel empowered because you can sit on the other side of the pen saying, because I accept you and I embrace you and I'm open to you. You won't face rejection because I am here as proof of somebody that won't, but you, the minute it becomes about you now it's it's just a totally different ball game. Mm-hmm. Well, it's all the childhood trauma crap showing up, you mm-hmm. know, and all of this fear that uh, you will be disgraceful, right? Mm-hmm. Ugh, yes. Uh, yeah. What do you think, you know, again, we're sort of, my hope as people are listening to this is not just to be thinking about you know, ENM is one specific thing. And, you know, do I want this? Do I not want this? Am I being pushed in this? I, I hope they think about that and consider the fact that, again, what it means to feel seen, safe, and heard in a relationship is the most important thing. And making sure that that foundation is there and not feeling silly about having to put those asks out there. And if you're met with resistance, somebody making you feel like your asks are too much, somebody making you feel like you should just go along with it, or now you're being too dramatic that is a signal that this is not a healthy relationship. And so on Mm -hmm. on a base level, I hope people can hold that. But I also think, you know, we're, we're trying to create an open space for people to think about their, their aspect. I, I loved when you said relationship identities and relationship orientation, and just giving people permission to say that that again, as a grayscale of experiences and what that looks like. And would it be okay to just allow yourself the possibility to expand your thinking, even if it never translates to an act? That was, I think, the big shift for me is the minute that I let go of the internal shame that I had to identify a certain way, see myself a certain way, only feel this way about that genitalia or that identity, you know, whatever it is, that was the moment that I felt more free. It hasn't translated and it doesn't have to be action. It's the willingness to accept the freedom of my self-exploration, however I need and want to do that and bring that to the surface. And it it feels very much like that's kind of the core of what you are trying to do for the people that you work with. Yeah, yeah. That is um, one of the first pillars of my process really is mm-hmm. to really do a big review and consider all of the messages that have been collected over the years of like basically what what you think you're supposed to be what you think you're supposed to do and really trying to unravel that um into identifying what do you truly want what do you truly value and what do you truly need and how can we just help you be more self-expressed in a way that feels so good to you? Yeah. And I I think that's such a beautiful way for us to kind of come to a close because it really is about creating the space to have that experience. And obviously you and I are trying to do that with the clients that we work with every day. And whether somebody is going in and seeing a therapist, seeing a coach, seeing a pastor, a shaman, a friend down the street, their hairdresser. It doesn't matter, but finding those people that I I loved when I was reading Atlas of the Heart. So plug in Brene Brown again in here. But one of the things that I really, really took away was this notion of wanting to 
learn what it means to feel fulfilled in in your life, wanting to know what it means to recognize your sense of connection to the self, really starting to think about for you and you specifically, as you find that connection, that curiosity, what we know we're really looking for is empathy. What we know that we want is somebody, and this was, again, maybe one of the Maybe one of the words that I thought I knew for a long time. I think I'm going to blame this one on cultural misunderstanding. I don't think this was my word displacement thing. But what she did when she talked about empathy is that it isn't the I've been in your shoes. I get it. It's I want to know and understand everything about what your experience is like to be in your shoes. And then I want to be on the bandwagon of supporting you, leading you, walking behind you, stepping aside when you need me to, while you are in the process of breaking in and getting comfortable in those shoes. Mm-hmm. And I I hope that as listeners think about this, again, as we talk about breaking out of shame, the shame we're bringing you here is all the silence when we don't meet the criteria, all the ladder systems that are in front of us to tell us you have to be on this rung doing these things at this time. And for us to be willing to say, gosh, this isn't working for me. And I could keep doing this. I could keep, you could have, you could have, we could have both been psychiatrists sitting here talking about a way different conversation than what we're talking (laughs) about now. We didn't want to, it didn't line up for us and that's okay. And, you know, the page from college chemistry that made that decision, the the Kira from, oh, fuck, I took the MCAT three times. I spent thousands, oh yeah, thousands of dollars on applications, the interviews. I was performing the same way that so many people, when they're being silent, when they're not setting a boundary, when they're telling themselves that they had this thought, that is the word you use, disgraceful. It is, it's shameful. It is a sign of you being less than. And so for us, it's realizing that those are all built on systems that count on shame to survive. Mm -hmm. So how we can create the space to then say, this isn't for me. And I'm going to start to to hopefully align with other people, but if not create a system in which I can be okay. Mm -hmm. Okay, so as we wrap today, I'm curious for you, I'd love to hear what you're going to take from our conversation. What is something you want to hold for yourself from this time we got today? Mm. I think for me, I, I really loved when you were talking about even your own story of like shame with sexuality and like this fear for for me, I like I'm taking away that I am not the only person on this earth who is experiencing this thing where I feel so alone in this like shameful thought or shame spiral that would cause disgrace to my family. Like there are others out there experiencing like very similar things. And that helps me feel not alone. Yeah, absolutely. So let's think about all the people listening to this that want to explore this deeper. They want to start researching, connecting, and obviously there's a safety coming from you as a resource. How do they connect with you? How do they find you? What's that next step to start to build that, that trust and that connection with other people? Yeah. So as I was talking about earlier, usually the people who come find me are really struggling with the jealousy or insecurity. And so Um, Lucky for your listeners, I created a nice freebie download where they can learn to calm the chaos of their jealousy. And um, so I can put that link in the show notes to help them really tune in and calm all of that. Um, what feels very intense emotions coming out to bring it back to like a sense of peace. Um, So I'll give that link to you and um, they can be connected on my website, hop on my email list and we'll be in contact. Oh, I love it. I need to download that just as somebody who my trauma brain is so focused again on there's just always the jealousy and it's not jealousy necessarily of like my partner being with someone else, but it is someone has it better than me. Someone's doing this. Why did this person get this? You know, so it's just the invitation to learn about how jealousy shows up, what we can do with it. I think it's something 
again, for everybody, I highly encourage you also just to go check out your website because I love all the information there. I love the way that you present. And again, just kind of building that safety. But when you're there, download that, explore again, how do we deal with jealousy? Even if you're like ethical non-monogamy doesn't even fit my wheelhouse or I still feel resistance. Jealousy is still a human emotion and we all experience it. So get the tool, connect with Paige. All right, let's end the same way we started. What's one word you would use to describe how you feel right now? Mm. On fire, even though that's two <laughs> words. No, I, I broke the rules in the beginning. So you're just following suit. It's fine. The dam broke already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel on fire. Like this is just the start of a conversation. Um, and I I feel so lit up inside by by you giving me the space to talk about this, to talk about a topic that is so dear to me. Um, I, I'm just lit up. Mm. And that, like, as soon as you said it, I think it kind of encapsulated. I have it. I've done so much work on sort of the somatic front of recognizing how my body is trying to communicate and my like kind of right in, in my chest and like my, the pit part of my stomach just started to feel like <laughs> fluttery. So I'm going to feel like maybe we're just switching roles. Cause now I'm like, is that a word? Is that a thing? Does it mean what I mean? Yeah. But it's that feeling of just like, when you've gone someplace that's a little uncomfortable, when you've pushed yourself to have a conversation, to be open to learning without trying to solve a problem, but just explore an experience. And so I'm, I'm so grateful as I mentioned in the beginning and saying this now, this is my first one that I'm recording. And so I am just so grateful that it was such a safe space. So thank you. And I can say for anybody that is thinking gosh, maybe I want to connect with Paige. Maybe I want to work with her in some way. I, I cannot fully put into words the safety she brings when you're just in the space with her, even on a computer. So please, everybody go check her out. Paige, thank you so much. I, I can't wait to go back and listen to this when we're done. You're so sweet, Kira. Thank you for inviting me on. I'm stoked that I got to have this combo with you. Ugh. Well, for everyone listening, remember, you have the power to author your own story. So let's go get that pen back. See you all for the next episode.